Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 208. In this episode, we're talking about sexual harassment and trauma with Tiffany Bloom. Tiffany is an author and speaker who serves at the intersection of justice and faith. She lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband and two sons. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. We had a really good conversation with Tiffany. I wonder, John, what were some of the things that you took away? I really love this conversation uh, with Tiffany as we speak about gender-related trauma, specifically uh, from a woman's uh, experience. And and I also appreciated how she incorporated scripture at various points uh, in really um, helpful and illuminating ways, uh, thinking about David and Bathsheba, and also thinking about the story of the woman caught in adultery, allegedly caught in adultery, right? There's no man, uh, as we said, sort of off the pod, there's no man in that scene, right? It takes two to tango, as you say. Uh, And so where where was that man? So I think the fact that there's no man is sort of uh, telling, perhaps, in terms of the nature of the allegation. Uh, but yes, uh, the way that she talked about these uh, these scenes and 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 spoke powerfully about um, women in scripture and 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 their value and their roles, uh, it just um, it, it was really a holistic conversation and pulled a lot of threads together. Uh, and I hope it's helpful for for listeners. Yeah, I totally agree. For me, the like big, wow, I'm going to take that wherever I go kind of thing was her uh, conversation about or the the part of our episode about bystander intervention. I can't wait. I'm going to like make a poster and stuff and have it in my office. I think it's so important. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Also, if you appreciate what we do here at the Two Cities, please consider joining our Patreon community to support our work and receive bonus content. Look for us on Patreon, follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Tiffany Bloom. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Madison. Well, Tiffany, we are in the middle of a a trauma series, and we are wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your story and maybe invite us into some of the work that you've done talking about um, experiences of trauma that are pretty common to women. Yeah. So I... What in your average Enneagram three, you know, as we love to dive in our Christian astrology there, um, type A gal and the hope of people pleasing, but also achieving was wound pretty tight for me. I was abandoned at birth in India, adopted, uh, just shy of two years old, grew up in rural Washington state. And I really, really found my identity Uh, nestled not as an Indian in India or as an Indian in America, but as a citizen of the kingdom. For me, it was where I finally felt fully accepted. Um, I didn't meet another person of color until I was in middle school. So it was a really, really interesting upbringing to have expectations on myself from others when they see my skin or learn of my story and not be able to match that. So as the people pleaser and lover of rules and boundaries that I am, um, I really, really wanted to achieve. And 
Um, following Jesus was so near and dear to me starting again in middle school. That was huge. It changed everything for me. Um, and as I pursued church leadership post secondary education, um, I assumed that if I played by the rules of leadership, of what is expected of women in systems, I would be treated fairly. And I learned like so many women that that's not the case. When we have a truth to tell at the expense of men, we might pay the price dearly. And so um, in the past few years, a lot of my research and area of interest and expertise has been abuse of power at a woman's expense. And what happens when we speak truth to power um, in political, business, educational, faith, even broad stroke societal spaces and the ramifications of that emotionally, relationally, financially, professionally, and spiritually. So that's kind of where I have been at. And that came um, at a very high cost. I was in a system I loved, a very large multi-million dollar organization serving uh, over 10,000 people uh, a month. And I discovered indiscretion of the very worst kind in senior leadership. And I knew that if I were to speak up Madison, this leader would not be the one to pay the price. I knew it would be me. Now, nobody told me that. Nobody taught me that. But as a woman, I knew intrinsically that this would go poorly for me. This would change the trajectory of my life, despite the fact that I was not the one um, who had been harmed to the degree that other women had. I had certainly been treated poorly, but not harmed in the way that others. And so firsthand learned of the trauma of telling the truth and doing the right thing, even when it's hard. And I think especially that gets really tricky and nuanced in faith spaces when our leadership is also our spiritual shepherd. Our leadership is also somebody who is responsible for the you know direction of our souls, and it can get it can get really icky really fast. So while we may look at Hollywood or business or politics and see a man who's abused his power and caused trauma among women and be like he's a monster, it's obvious. It's a little trickier when it's uh, someone who you've had a spiritual experience or growth at their behest. Thanks, Tiffany. That's really helpful, and I think that that last part is really important to highlight because it, I think it's um, untangling the sort of reputation and experience of somebody when it sort of starts to come to light. But it's also yeah. the case that we have, you know, people have different definitions of of harm um, and what kind of harm can be caused by people or, or I guess what constitutes harm. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you would define some of those uh, instances of abuse of power. And um, if you could paint in broad strokes about some of the things that you've seen and experienced. Great question. Let's rewind. I really love you said what constitutes harm. So let's let's give a working definition together for our time together. I would say what constitutes harm is a violation of emotional, relational, financial, societal, or spiritual uh, boundaries. And then what constitutes trauma? Oh, a very well-known definition of what constitutes trauma is occurrences that overwhelm your nervous system. Occurrences that overwhelm your nervous system that you cannot respond to um, at a steady state. So if that's the case, then we know that uh someone's intention might not line up with their impact, hence why some may find it subjective and say, this is not trauma. I have not caused you harm, 
but they are not the determiner of what is cause of harm. It is the one who's been harmed. So I think that's a helpful working definition for our time. And one of the ways that you really see this for women in now we're talking lowercase t trauma all the way to capital T, someone's going to prison. I think we have to step back and look at how a woman's place, space, and her personhood and essence and livelihood is affected if she is not able to advance um, in a way that is acceptable or equitable or equal to men. That is a barrier that is a great seedbed for harm, truly. If there is not a place where women are respected and welcomed, although that might be on paper, it's not in principle, you're going to see this abuse of power. Um, I think one of the things that I, in my research, that I found very fascinating was how even the most egalitarian of spaces were still just as likely to perpetuate harming and abuse of power against a woman as a more complementarian or patriarchal setting, which I think was really fascinating. This faux egalitarianism that props up women in a performative manner to be accepted um, to a wider audience. But in reality, women are still um, just filling a role to appear like it's a functioning entity, it's a functioning system, it's a functioning church or business or nonprofit or organization. And in reality, women have no voice of power. I would love to follow up on that. I'm really curious about this. So at my church, um, my pastor is a woman. Um, I'm an elder. Uh, we call we call it a leadership team. Kind of the elder board sort of sounds, uh, I guess, uh, maybe a little patriarchal and also uh, potentially uh, just confusing. And plus, at, at my church, we like to say we call things by what we do. So we're the leadership team. We we lead. Um, but uh, the team is uh, comprised of men and women. Um, and uh, I'm I'm curious about. If you could tell us more about this dynamic of egalitarian spaces that um, uh, are performative or whatever, I mean, I wonder if perhaps in in our case, um, one of one of the things that uh, might separate uh, our church, which I regard as a, a quite healthy church, is the fact that our lead pastor is a woman. Um, but I'm just curious if you could say more about that because I find that very very curious. Yeah. Well, again, this would definitely not pertain to your situation if your lead pastor is a woman, which awesome. I'd love to join you on Sunday morning sometime. Uh, but you really see this in spaces where women are a stepping stone to accomplish an agenda. Their personhood isn't valued. Their ability is valued. And so they might be able to, you know, let's use a church example. They might be a very gifted speaker. They might be a very gifted leader. And you are there for that. You're not there because we think you're capable. We think your personhood is valuable. We are here to use you. Now, here's where it gets tricky, John, uh, is where women, we think unto the Lord. You know, I think in this effort of self-sacrifice as we follow Christ, it can easily be co-opted to be like, well, you're here for the Lord. You're not here for me. You're here for the Lord. You got to do this for the Lord. That can easily, that narcissistic, uh, manipulative verbiage can easily be used against women. And many women in my research, this was a huge resounding sound of, I felt taken advantage of because they were like, well, you're here for the Lord, not for us. You're here. We need your ability. And then when they were burnt out or when they felt like this isn't a good fit or when they spoke up because they didn't feel like they were being treated fairly, they were the ones to be punished rather than examining this broken system that created for them to be used and abused. Yeah. Thank you, Tiffany. That's really helpful. I think I've also heard from a lot of women that they internalize 
the narrative that if they wanted to do more than they were grabbing for power. Um, I sat in a circle with a bunch of women at one point, we were kind of reflecting on our callings and journeys and stuff. And they were like, yes, that is why, like what took me so long. And so I wonder if you saw that as well. And if you could maybe even give some sort of constructive help for those who are discerning, you know, what are some ways that you can untangle some of these unhelpful messages and really hear the Lord more more clearly, I guess? Yeah, I think when we go to scripture, and we look at these gorgeous women from the Old Testament to the New who practiced nonviolent resistant power, who practiced shared cooperative power, who practiced generous authority. We have such a, oh, I have chills just talking about it. We have such a beautiful example of what it can look like to lead and quote unquote grab power in places and spaces that we are needed. It is not that we're reaching beyond what we should. We are desperately needed in these places. And and honestly, you look at the world over and you look at where women are in power, women are in shared power. We're not talking about a sole woman in power. And this goes back to what you said a little bit earlier, John, how there's equal men and women or varied men and women on your leadership team. You know, research shows if you just have one woman in power, she is going to be the just the she's going to be beat to a pulp if she is not it says if you're gonna have women in power it should be three or more um if it's just one she's gonna take it more brutally than women on even lower levels of power because she's the sole one with her point of view be like i don't see it like that all these low-grade misogynistic you know lobs that she'll get of i don't see it like that or no one else thinks that here or are you sure that's how people see it and you're like, I can guarantee half of the population sees it like this. <laughs> um, and so you you want to have a, a more than, you know, more than one, three or more. And to your point, when we look at some of these uh, societies, I'm, I'm thinking of Sweden. I'm thinking of, um, you know, a lot of the Scandinavian countries, honestly, where women have equal power to men in the highest levels of leadership and government. Safer streets are designed. The GDP uh, is doubling, tripling decade over decade, uh, you have you have safer places, you have uh, more equitable places, you have profitable places. So in, in a business sense, we can already see um, the proofs in the pudding. Now, as we talk about uh, calling and we're talking about more of a, a spiritual realm in the, in the kingdom sense, I think we need to go back to scripture and look at these incredible women who led fearlessly. You know, I love looking at even... Deborah and JL, who used violent power to ensure victory. But then you look at Mary and Elizabeth, who used nonviolent power and nonviolent resistance to usher in victory. They were the mothers of this movement and they used what they had as much power as they could exercise in their time and place. So we have a multitude of examples from rich to poor to everything in between, from somewhat liberated women to completely patriarchal societies. And we are given time and time again, examples of what it looks like in societies and spaces and places when women quote unquote, grab for power. Everybody wins, not just women. You know, you think about the early nineties, it was called the year of the woman after Anita Hill spoke up against Clarence Thomas. More women ran for office that next year and more safer laws for uh, for us nationwide in America were passed in that next year because the nation watched these hearings, a woman's power being violated, this abuse of power at her expense. And they thought we have to do something about this. And they did what they could. They grabbed for power. Yeah, that point about how everyone benefits um, just within the microcosm of my church. One of the things that I 
felt very early on when I first uh, arrived is how um, how empowering if it it, it uh, feels for everybody in the church to you know take up new ministries and different um, sort of missional uh, ventures and there's really is this kind of sense of like you know if you feel that passion and calling to like start something and do something then do it there really there really is more of a sense of like the priesthood of all believers I would say um, in this space than I've ever and I had felt in other um, types of settings where, of course, such a, you know, a belief would have been held. But in terms of just like seeing it experienced, uh, some, something about, um, yeah, this this idea that we could we could all um, use our giftings uh, in, in various ways. Uh, it, it just it, it feels more real. And it also feels like there is space for everyone to uh, pursue that uh, if, if they feel the, the, the lead of the spirit in that way. That's beautiful. Such liberty. No, no putting people in a pecking order. No, I think when, you know, uh, Dosh Keltner out of USC talks about, uh, he's kind of the expert on men abusing their power specifically. And he talks about how the virtues that got men into a place of power in the beginning, um, generosity or kindness or organization, they will often shed those virtues in their ascent to power. And they arrive to this place where it's thus saith the me and women are at my disposal, specifically women. This is, this is crazy where they think themselves more sexually attractive and should have access to anybody they want without any ramifications as well as um, just lawlessness. Nobody can hold them accountable. Nobody like accountability is not for me. It's for everybody else, but me. So they kind of develop these narcissistic tendencies along the way, the more power they have. So to your point, uh, the antidote to that would be ensuring that everybody is developing men power and that everybody is holding everyone else accountable, especially women holding men accountable. Yeah. I, re I really felt like what it means to be egalitarian was was very clearly expressed not in the idea that like oh women could do ministry which is of course a huge part of that but that we can all do ministry like truly and uh it just it there's just something very empowering about that that at least i've experienced in this church um as you said there are some egalitarian churches that perhaps uh, don't pull this off or, and I'm not saying that our church is perfect or anything like that. Of course not. Um, but I do think, I do think there's some healthy things that I've never experienced in other churches, uh, uh before. And I'm curious, maybe, um, what, what, what would be some things that you'd want to say specifically to those types of churches that are functionally egalitarian where, you know, on paper, yes, they're egalitarian. You ask the pastor, <laughs> the, the male pastor, uh, what they, what they think. And they'll say, yes, no, women can do all, all these sorts of things. Um, but yet maybe like, uh, sort of representationally, you don't see it. Um, what, what are some things that you'd want to say specifically to the, the functional egalitarians? Yeah, I think functional egalitarians, you would, going back to representation of what you just mentioned, you'd love to think, oh, their executive pastor is a woman. Surely this is a safe place. Surely this is a respectful environment of women. And we cannot always assume that. Um, in my situation, I was on a leadership team where it was made up, not quite half and half, but I would say maybe 35, 65, 35% women, 65% men, which was pretty impressive. Tiffany, I really um, was struck by you bringing up Anita Hill in the Year of the Woman um, because 
I, th- I think it does align with some of what you highlighted your work about the fact that um, when women come forward, they're silenced. And I feel like, I, I mean, and the man against whom Anita Hill stood is still on the Supreme Court. Um, so yeah. And so she has not received justice. I mean, su- such the opposite. So it's interesting to think about this intersection of like her taking this stand and there being this ripple effect. I wonder if you could help us to think about that. I, I think you do focus on this in Pray Tell in particular. So what does it mean for a woman to to stand up, to not receive justice, but to, to sort of watch that unfold? Yeah. So it's a one-two punch. It's a one-two punch. The first punch is some sort of trauma happened to her. Her nervous system was overwhelmed. She could not cope. The inability to cope has happened. Number two, she's likely not believed. That's the most painful of experiences for women. It's one thing to go through trauma. It's another thing for somebody to not see you, to not hold space for you, and to not believe that you've been harmed and to maybe even make excuses for the for the person who's caused you harm. I think that when we begin to talk about how these dominoes kind of flow and how they affect a woman who's been harmed, we first have to see that the most traumatizing thing uh, beyond the initial trauma is not being believed after she had the audacity, after she had the strength to speak up. I think when I think of my own story of speaking truth to power, that was the most painful for me because there's nothing in my past, in my character, in my history that would uh, that would bring me to lie <laughs> that would bring me to lie and research shows less than 0.01% 0.01% of women lie about abusive power at their expense we are talking about a very small sliver of the population that would lie in these cases women have nothing to gain they're the ones uh with the scarlet letter after these situations they're the ones whose uh, reputation is harmed. They have nothing to gain. So if they're speaking up, they have got the audacity to do so. And it's to be applauded, um, not to be criticized. Now, the second thing that often happens in these situations is we will go to the defense of the man. Now, if we're in a spiritual setting, if we're in kingdom work, if you will, we cannot reconcile first impressions. We have this confirmation bias where if this person, this person of power, this man of power, we're going to use this because over 80% of um <laughs> of these situations is, is at the hands of men, um, closer to 89%. But uh, if this person, we've had a spiritual experience, again, at their behest, it is nearly impossible due to first impressions, due to confirmation bias, that we could get on board that that person is capable of harm. Because he prayed for me when I was infertile. He he came to my rescue when my kid broke his arm and was in the hospital. He could never, this could never happen. How? No, we can't reconcile that good people in our mind are capable of bad things. We, they have the halo effect, especially we give senior pastors a free pass with this halo effect. Uh, and, and we're willing to believe that they are capable of no wrong. So not only a confirmation bias, we will continually mine our own experiences for reasons why this wouldn't happen. We will also add positive experience that have yet to happen <laughs> because of course this person couldn't do this. So then we have this woman who is coming forward with likely less power than the man she's speaking to. 
and the man she's speaking against. Um, and, and in church settings, where it's so different in corporate settings, in church settings, these board members that a woman might be coming to, let's say, again, we're just keeping that church setting, um, or elders, uh, as John mentioned, they're likely friends or also have had a spiritual experience with the senior pastors leading. And so they are even, they are even less likely of all people in the congregation, less likely to stand in the gap for women. Now let's look at uh, Bathsheba and David and Nathan. We, I, I call Nathan a mod, uh, uh, an ancient day whistleblower. Now we don't see him in the same scene as Bathsheba, so sometimes it might be hard to to kind of reconcile that idea. But he is the one; he's the first one to speak truth to power because multiple people knew of this affair because when he had sent his people to go procure because she this is an act of theft procure Bathsheba and have his way with her and sexually assault her and she's sent back in this whole uh uh horrible story that happens uh in her life and she loses her husband all of these things has a baby that she didn't ask for all of these things and it is Nathan who comes and says you've done wrong and speaks and you better make this right and we'd love to think no but he was fully restored no scripture tells us that he lost up to half his kingdom his own son tried to take his his throne so we can clearly see that this man paid a generational price for his sin against a woman the lord took this very seriously so in in uh in a church setting we need more nathans we need to have these men and women who will say this is not okay i i can step outside this and this is why i really 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 push for a third party investigation anytime that there's abusive power reported and i just want to say a little caveat and this is the hill i'll die on this is often what i'm asked about in pray tell interviews sometimes the only thing i'm asked about is my stance on um Br matthew 18 bringing your case well she should go directly to her perpetrator. She should go directly uh, to the man who harmed her. And any therapist would tell you that is the most traumatic thing to happen. Also, that's an imbalance of power. You know, when Matthew 18 is talking about equals, equal people in power going to each other, it's not talking about a church leader. Scripture is clear in Timothy that you go uh, before the elders, you go and they take it. They take it to church, le church leadership. And so I think, uh, and in that case, I think anonymity is, should be awarded because we love to destroy a woman's name. And here's why it goes back to that. Um, it's a just world hypothesis. Uh, researchers call it a just world hypothesis because if it could happen to her, it could happen to me. So I have to destroy her. I have to assume she asked for it. I have to assume she did something wrong because if not, everything as I see it could be a little wonkier than I expected. It could happen to me. It could happen to my daughter. It could happen to my wife. So we love to believe that she deserved it. You know, we look at, um, I mean, there's a million modern cases we could look at, but we will punish the woman because, and that goes again, back to that domino effect is even if she speaks up, we're going to punish her because surely she did something to do this because I can't believe I live in a world where this could happen to somebody who didn't ask for it. Yeah. Thank you for saying that about David, uh, in, in particular, um, you know, um, sometimes if I'm being uh, perfectly honest, I regret that that story is even in scripture because of the way it's sometimes leveraged, uh, in, in goofy ways. Now you've mentioned, you know, e examples of 
women who are blowing blowing the whistle and there's this um imbalance of power against men with greater power but i also get frustrated by the men who tell on themselves i think of the example of donald trump with the access hollywood tape where there isn't a woman who's come to make an accusation but the man said grab him by the and you know, you know what comes next. Uh, yeah. And I frankly don't like censoring that that statement because I I want people to feel the weight of how dirty and gross uh, this this uh, claim was. And if anybody yeah. is and if anybody is offended by the use of the word, I want to say you voted for that guy, you know, um, but but um, it, it really it, it's yeah. It, I mean, how much more um, uh terrifying that a, a man can tell on himself and yet you know he will still um acquire the power that he seeks and you know somebody like david is a, a person that you know good christian people might appeal to like hey look god used this this man who did this thing and um yeah i really i you know i wrestle sometimes with um i mean i'm glad that scripture wants to uh go there in a sense you know that uh warts and all let's tell the story but um i really don't like how it gets leveraged uh and how a story like that has been leveraged in, in this uh in this space um and so i just uh, i appreciate you uh saying that yeah i really appreciate appreciated what you were saying um i mean you walking through the experience of what someone uh, or, or the narrative around people who report, uh, really resonates with me. Uh, I mean, our, our church had a situation that I stood alongside and, um, I tried to combat these narratives at every point to hear them say, but he's such a good man. And me to say, he is not everything to you. Are <laughs> like you're not having a full experience necessarily. Um, you know, we're all different people to different or to others and things like that. Sorry, I'm not making a lot of sense, but um, I think also, uh, I mean, this could be a little complicated to bring up, but um, what I hear a lot is the sort of innocent until proven guilty. And I think that's a really complicated aspect of our legal system that really complicates things. Oof. And I'd love to hear you reflect on it generally, but, but I want to put out there something that I find really important. And it's that, um, in cases like this, especially when there's anonymity, innocent until proven guilty basically means I believe the person being accused and I don't believe the person bringing the accusation. And so it's not innocent until proven guilty. It's the person making the reports a liar until proven otherwise. And I think that that, that, that needs to be reckoned with a lot more. <laughs> I, it's inadvertently victim blaming, isn't it? I, yeah. It goes back to what we just talked about of like, no, I still won't accept that these are the terms and conditions of what happened to a woman until I have solid proof. Now, solid proof becomes subjective, doesn't it? What do you want? Video, phone calls, her ring camera? I don't know. Like, yeah. where do we go from here? Like, what do you want proof to be? And I think that gets gets really tricky. Now, I also want to, um, with that idea of innocent until proven guilty, mm, we're going to go there. Oh, scripture calls for two or more witnesses. No, 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 no. You're asking for two or more victims. You're asking for a pattern of harm before I will say that he's guilty. 
innocent until proven guilty. I need I need multiple situations. In my situation, over 30 people in the end came forward who had been victims of harm. But you know what? It really stinks to go first. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, and I and I sat before um, the powers that be and said, wait, you want witnesses? You have plenty of witnesses. No, you want victims. You want blood. You want flesh. You want stories. And until you can give that, you won't take action. I was... I was jaw on the floor. And I think for me, I'm like, so you're going to wait until somebody strikes again. <laughs> and then, and only then, and only then will you take action. I, I had a situation where an individual who went through the ringer, um, you know, they always move. The ladies always move and I don't blame them for it. I'd moved away that whole thing. And, um, and she was told, well, you know what, really, until we have more, more, you know, more witnesses. And she's like, I'm not a witness. I am the person he harmed. Like I am the person he harmed. And I just remember thinking, we think so low of women. The value of one woman was not enough. It wasn't enough. So when you talk about, you know, innocent until proven guilty, we're saying one woman's existence, her livelihood in image bear harmed is not enough for us. We need multitudes, apparently, at least two or more. And I yeah. think that this idea that a woman's truth is somehow um, not trustworthy, that's what we're saying. We're saying women aren't trustworthy. Th this is so unacceptable. And we're saying that um, women who speak to truth to power are somehow dangerous. They're somehow dangerous. What they have, the knowledge they have. I think um, for me, again, People pleasing Enneagram three type A plays by every rule in the rule book for me to be seen as this dangerous person. I'm like, I'm like the most, I'm like me, but you know, I think, I think the hardest thing is the, and just the um, character assassination that has to happen in those situations to protect the reputation of the man in question, the character assassination that happens on her behalf by other women, especially. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think there's nothing more painful. Yeah. It's also the case that in a lot of instances that the investigations are set up so that other people can't come forward. Because if you have anonymity, if you have confidentiality, and then don't have an organization or an in investigator uh, that is working to comprehensively inform the communities about what's going on, then it's a secret, you know, like I go forward and I say, this person has caused me harm. And then I get silenced. You know, if you want this to go forward, if you want us to take your complaint seriously, then don't speak to anyone. We meanwhile, waiting in the wings is all of these other people who have had a similar experience and they don't know that somebody has taken the first step, that no. their story has begun to be told. No and so clue. justice cannot be served, especially if, as you say, and I completely agree, there has to be more than one woman to come forward. And and often it's not just two or three. You need <laughs> 10 or whatever. Uh, I mean, so ridiculous. Um, You hit the nail on the head. I think this idea that we are seen as a gossip if we talk about our experience. And you know what a therapist said to me, Madison? She said, it is not your full-time job, 401k with benefits to protect someone else's reputation. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you still feel like it's your job to ensure he has an intact reputation after all you've been through. And I was like, 
Oh my grace. Wow. My desire to ensure nobody is seen poorly. It's still at play, you know? Um, yeah, it is. A, it's, it's not our job to protect people's reputations. It is not our job. We are not sinful. We are not uh, holding a grudge. We are not, we're not, you know, when I left the organization that I was working for, um, I didn't tell anyone why I left. I had just had a baby. So I had a super easy out of oh, second kid. Childcare is expensive, right? Even though I was in senior leadership. Um, and uh, I later found out that a bunch of my colleagues were said, hey, she is uh, she is a disgruntled employee. Nobody contact her. Um, I mean, I didn't know this until years later, but I was just like, wow, like even on my way out, even though I kept my mouth shut, you still had to find a way to throw me under the bus, like to, to, to put the woman down. So nobody, my point to, is proving your point. Nobody had a chance to even know why I left, uh, this, this very toxic system, let alone be able to stand up and be like, me too, me too. This was my experience too. Yeah. Uh, that's, I'm so sorry. That it makes sense though, because they preemptively started the character assassin- oh, assassination. Yeah. So I'm so sorry. I got to write a book about it. We're, we're moving on. <laughs> Good. Well, Tiffany, I, I, the subtitle, I mean, pray tell is just like an incredible pun. I mean, I hope, I hope every My time husband. you talk about this book, I mean, your, your other that. titles are amazing, but I mean, this is just like, um, you know, let the readers know I'm snapping. Um, but the the subtitle is also just incredible. So why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up. And I think we've been highlighting a lot of the, you know, why we silence women or in what ways women are silenced. But I would love to talk about that second part. What does it look like for us to facilitate or to create environments to fix environments so that everyone can speak up? All right, let's get to the good stuff. Here we go. So uh, what I'm going to share with you is used by the United States military. It is being enacted on public universities nationwide. In fact, I was just uh, contacted by the team with the Archbishop of Canterbury of a nationwide campaign they are doing in the UK. Um, call, you know, it's all around bystander intervention. And here's what we can do. Here's how everyone can speak up. And guess who modeled it perfectly for us? It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the story of the woman allegedly caught in adultery, heavy on the allegedly, uh, we see bystander intervention so perfectly that we can use in our modern day, whether you're in the foyer at church, whether you're at the water cooler at work, I don't care where you are, this is going to work. This is how everyone can speak up before lawyers are involved, before you find out it's on CNN and USA Today and you're reading about it in NPR, before it hits the fan, there are everyday things that we can do without a ton of skin in the game. We can all partake in. Here we go. Jesus is has this woman thrown before him at the temple. The Pharisees are trying to trap him. She is merely a means to an end, but he practices bystander intervention in three ways. He first places himself physically in between him, him, the women and the Pharisees, and then he changes the subject. So when we are, uh, when we notice a slight imbalance of power, I mean, slight y'all slight, slight, slight. We notice Carl is, 
talking to Rosie and Rosie's darting her eyes, clearly wanting to get out of the conversation. Slight imbalance of power is what we're looking for. We've got to be awake to those. We've got to be looking for those. And we walk up, hey, Rosie, I was about to go get a coffee. Did you want to join me? We immediately change the conversation. We distract. So we go up, we place our body physically in between the two, you know, casually, we distract. We walk away and I'm going to do the light stuff and then we're going to get to the like, here's how we report. But we're going to start with the easy, easy steps, baby steps, right? Um, and then not only did he distract, he then, not change the subject, he made her security and her safety the number one goal. So we say to Rosie, are you okay? He said to this woman after they left, or, you know, go into no more, but he was, it was a check-in. It was a touch point. It was a, you don't have to live like this. These people aren't here to harm you anymore. We love to think that she had this crazy backstory. We love to paint her as this dirty girl. And I think when we look at it, he, he, her safety was of the most importance, not even his own, not even his own, even though they were looking for a way to trap him and crucify him. And I'm trying to do this in tandem here. So forgive me if this is a little clunky. So we go to this woman and be like, hey, Rosie, I noticed that looks a little, uh, I felt like Carl was trying to be up in your business or like, and you know what? As women, we are so quick to dismiss things until somebody else confirms that something was awkward. We are so quick to not believe our own body and experiences and nervous system. We will only be like, you know what? That actually was a little weird. He always comes up to me. He always beelines it for me. And I'm just like, he grosses me out. And then we go to Carl and we say, hey, dog, hey, she felt uncomfortable. You don't have to be like that. In the UK, they are they have rolled out this uh, campaign with the government, with the Church of England, with they've got, you know, top tier comedians on board on board for men who notice their mates making moves and making women feel uncomfortable of their way of enacting bystander intervention to say, mate, and this is now going to be associated with like dog you better not this woman feels uncomfortable you're 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 playing your hand here you need to simmer down um and so that's what we're doing we're going to mean like hey dog she didn't she didn't and we can go if we really felt like it wasn't that bad maybe carl's just a creep and he doesn't realize it maybe carl doesn't have social skills we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt if he deserves it be like hey man i don't think she enjoyed that the way you always grab her you know her shoulder the way you stand more than 18 inches closer to her the way you we're just doing those little things that doesn't put mud on our face. That just shows like we are aware. If women had that one thing on the earth, do you realize how much we could prevent <laughs> the, amount of, the amount of harm we could prevent against women? And especially in office settings, especially in office settings, especially in church settings, especially in the at the gym. I mean, you name it. These these are small, small, small things we can do in every system that we occupy that could prevent a lot of harm from snowballing into something more serious. Okay, let's say it is serious. Let's say a woman has come to us and said, so-and-so said something so inappropriate to me. There was no touching. There was no, it was just off color. Um, I once um, had a man of the cloth say to me, girl, I could put a baby in you. Yeah. Yeah, folks. As a, as a shepherd myself at the time, you can imagine my surprise. You can imagine my surprise. And I remember looking my eyes to the other woman that heard, hoping she'd be like, not okay. And she laughed. 
And some of the greater harm came from her laughter. And I remember thinking, it's my fault. I was a 20-something. I I got a new dress. I shopped that Target sale rack and I was feeling fresh and I paid for it. Now, I grew up in purity culture, so I instantly assumed it was my fault. Instantly assumed this is on me. Again, rule-following 90s kid who grew up in purity culture, I was primed to be taken advantage of. I was primed. And that is another conversation for another day of how purity culture has set up women in church spaces and the workplace to be objectified. But we can talk about that another day. Um, so here I am. This 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 happens to me. And the first thing I do is I want to be like, hey, are you okay? And that didn't happen. So when somebody comes to us with a story like that or with something even more egregious, we first say, I hear you and I'm listening. We nod. We show nonverbal communication skills, which is 90% of communication. We nod. We have serene eyes. We keep our mouth shut. We just, I'm here and I am listening. To be seen and heard and known in those moments can draw strength and le- others lending their strength is genuinely, I believe, half the battle. So that's, we lament. We lament that this has happened. We acknowledge this has happened. And then we move to a place of love and learning. I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to love you through this. Love looks like showing up for somebody. You know what? The, the It is not on the harmed to drag the the offend, uh, offenders to the line of justice. We have constantly put it on the harm. It is your job to make this right if you've been harmed. And historically, we think about the civil rights movement. We allowed the harm to carry the brunt of the weight rather than those who had really, truly no skin in the game. We can do this. 97% of us aren't offenders. It's the 3% who are ruining it for everybody, okay? So we can say, love looks like showing up. If you need me to call the police, I got you, girl. If you need me to show up and email that church board, I got you, girl. If you need me to show up when you're going before the elders or the board or the leadership team, I will sit. I will I will be your body double. And you don't have to do this alone. I will have my hand on your back. I will have holding your hand. You don't have to do this alone. I did not speak up against this insane abuse of power until somebody lent me their strength. It was one sole person who said, you don't have to do this alone. We can do this together. And then I said, okay, I think I can do this. And that was like nine months after uh, discovering indiscretion. So there's great power and this is love. And then we don't want to admit that love looks like justice. We'd love to say that they're opposite sides of the coin, but justice is love. Justice is love. Uh, Dr. Cornell West said, uh, love is justice out loud. So if we really want to move to a place of justice, of equity and equality and reparations of making right what's wrong, because these these monsters, especially in the pulpit, they are made. We have created spaces for them to get away with this. So clearly the system is broken, not just the man. The system is broken. The machine is broken in in addition to the man. (laughs) So if we want to see not just the man uh, uh, really face the consequences of his actions. But if we want to see these machines, these systems, these organizations, these ministries, these churches really rectify with how they have created a space for somebody to get away with such uh, acts, then we really have to be able to ask the hard questions. And again, that's where I am. I will die on the hill of third-party investigation (laughs) Um, because it really is one of the only ways where somebody who hasn't already drank the Kool-Aid, who can have kind of that outside view. In my situation and in situations throughout the country, especially in churches, you really don't see action. You really don't see reparations and you really don't see um, a, a man removed from power until a third party is involved. Yeah. Going back to what that man of the cloth said to you, 
Yeah, that's a massive WTF from me, dog. <laughs> I got more where that came from. I just gave you a, I just gave you a little snack on that. There's, there's been a whole meal before. Yeah, it's lots, lots of fun, lots of fun to be a woman, yeah. right? Well, I think it's really helpful. I think you hinted at this, but it, in terms of bystander intervention, I think it's really important to note that um, a lot of times the pro- the practice of people is to go to the person. So like that person standing with you, let's say she didn't laugh, but she just kind of stood there and and didn't say anything. And she felt uncomfortable too. You know, she didn't serve you, but she kind of froze. Yeah. And then the usual practice would be maybe that she would come to you and say, Hey, Tiffany, that was kind of gross. Like, are you, did you think it was gross too? But if she didn't like that, you know, something that is, is harmful to women is harmful to women, whether or not it offended the person it was directly said to. And I think it's really important in terms of bystander intervention to empower bystanders to not necessarily get permission to things that they witnessed. You know, yes. like, yes, that that takes the burden off of the person directly harmed because both of you were harmed in that situation. Yep. You Absolutely. you both were harmed, but you obviously were objectified well beyond um, what was remotely OK. But yeah. Yeah. Two quick things I would just love to touch on, if you don't mind. Um, one of the things and that I would just encourage listeners, uh, pray tell, I really dive into how women defend men, um, how I call it puppets of the patriarchy, <laughs> because they don't want to lose their place of power and they don't want to lose their adjacent place to power. Because if they have goals and ambitions of their own, they will not uh, they will not lose their space on behalf of other women. And we have created a system where women are pit against each other. So again, I just encourage, because this is part of the greater problem is how women are pitted against each other um, to keep men happy, especially in faith and mainstream spaces. And in all spaces, this is a, this is a serious problem. But um, research shows that naming what's happened to us, the idea of even um, sexual harassment wasn't introduced to the American common language until the late 60s. And we can thank RBG for that. Um, And so uh, women who were born 30s, 40s, and even early 50s, they're reporting uh, abusive power in uh, specifically office, you know, organizational spaces was about 7%. And then with that next generation, it moves up to about 44%. But now we have language to name what's happened to us. And I think this is one of the greatest, this is why we go to therapy. How do we name what's happened to us and heal from it? When we can name the harm that's happened to be like, hey, that was harassment or, hey, that was abusive power or, hey, that was objectification. At 21, I'd never heard the word objectification of women or what that constituted. But when I learned, I looked back at my experiences and was able to not only name the harm, but also be like, I'm not going to stand for this. So now you have millennials and Gen Z. Our reporting is up to 77%. 77%. So the value for all women and men is knowing what these terms mean, making sure they're common language, and understanding that it's unacceptable. Tiffany, I have so many more questions, but um, I really love what you've put on the table for us today. And I hope it's really helpful for our listeners. Um, empowering for the women, maybe gently correcting, if not a little bit more for the men um, and for the women who have have not um, facilitated um, justice and in their uh, spaces. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 